and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. We normally publish an episode once a fortnight, but given the strangeness of the global pandemic, we're also putting together short sacred reflections on our off weeks. So next week, I'll be checking back in with a former guest about how this time is crystallizing or maybe even changing their sacred values and what they think it means for our collective values. And I would also really love to hear from you. Please do send in your voice memos on the same questions. Just one or both is fine. About a minute and a half or two minutes is best. All the details of where to send this are in the show notes. And if you spend as much time on WhatsApp as me at the moment, you can just save the contact that's in those notes, hit the little microphone button, speak for a minute or two, and then release it, and it will send it to us as easy as pie. In today's more standard sacred episode, I had a conversation with Ruth Hunt. Ruth was the chief executive of Stonewall from 2014 to 2019, and worked there in various roles prior to being the CEO. She's now co-director of Deeds and Words, and sits in the House of Lords as Baroness Hunt of Bethnal Green. She's also the curator of the Book of Queer Prophets, which will be released in May. We spoke about the joy her relationship with God brings her, her love of the Bible, leading Stonewall through a change in its position on trans issues, and why defensive anger just doesn't get you very far. I really hope you enjoy listening. Ruth, we're going to kick off straight in the deep end, uh, getting right to the heart of things and maybe to you, having had a bit of time to reflect, what came up uh, in response to the question, what do you hold sacred or what are your sacred values? I think my sacred values are ones that are rooted very clearly in fairness. I think that I, I find it very difficult when things are unfair or unjustified. But I think my values are also about humility, the capacity to acknowledge human fallibility, that we make mistakes and to be able to come back from those mistakes. And I think that my values are about always trying to leave something better than where I left it. And and if I can hold that in my heart, then I, I, I keep on the right track. Fairness, fallibility and, and leaving things better than you left it. That feels like a lovely trinity. Um, do, you, do you have a sense of where they come from? I think... Um, my, it's a it's a combination. I was uh, lucky enough to have uh, two parents who loved me very much and were utterly committed to making sure me and my brother worked hard. And we didn't miss miss an opportunity. We had little desks in our bedrooms when we were kids, and doing our homework was very important. So, but but things, and it was about making sure that we did our very best, um, whatever that looked like. I also uh, was lucky enough to go to a little Catholic school in in Wales where. It was my normal at the time, but collective worship every Friday afternoon where we went and all sang hymns together was a beautiful thing. I mean, I didn't learn long division, but we did learn some beautiful hymns. And I think think that collective um, culture of sticking with each other is incredibly important. When I was 13, my aunt died. Uh, She was 32 and died in childbirth and she left three little kids. And they were in this school, this this Catholic school that me and my brother had gone to. And, and of course, that school wrapped itself around us. And that that warmth and generosity in the face of often very distressing times of human fallibility was an incredibly shaping experience. That's a beautiful thing. I, it's a ter- it strikes me that it feels unusual to hear of people dying in childbirth 
now mm. and kind of within our lifetimes. It's definitely not obviously in the rest of the world. So in this little Catholic school, you sing hymns and you write beautifully in, in the forthcoming book about queer prophets, about the sense of joy that came through from those communities. Do you, do you have an earliest memory of God or an earliest memory of a kind of spiritual experience? I don't know. I, th- I think that um, it, is, it is about your normal. I, th- I think 13 was, was a really shaping time for me. Obviously, I was already realising I was gay, so that there was all that going on as well and, and, and being a teenager. And, and I loved the hymns absolutely loved the hymns and loved the Bible. You know, we read the Bible, but Dear Lord and Father of Mankind was just beautiful. Here I am, Lord. It was beautiful. And we just loved those that that singing and that coming together. So even now when, when me and my brother get together with with friends from primary school, we can instantly be transported into that sense of community. I think we're trying to set up a Spotify list of Christ the King hymns, do you know? So good Catholic hymns. And I really miss it now actually when I sometimes go to church now. That, that lack of kind of joyful, abandoned singing that doesn't kind of need complex arrangements or anything. It's just pure joy. It was, was very, very special to me. And is that because of the tradition you're in now or you think adults just hold back a bit more on the letting rip with the worship singing? I don't know. I think it's probably because I'm a grown-up and grown-ups don't sing as much. I sometimes go, I've got lots of godchildren and I go to their school and, and that singing is still loud as an enthusiastic as ever. Um, I think congregations just aren't big enough these days to get that going, but and we all take ourselves much too seriously. Whereas I think when we were kids, we could sing about you know the the foxes in his hole and the swallows in his nest. You know, we could really autumn days when the grass is jewelled, and we've just embraced these ideas of love and joy and and solidarity, for want of a better word, and community together, and and this forgiveness. You know, forgive our foolish ways is an incredibly important line to me. That that hymn, of course, based on. Um, a, a poem about alcohol abuse from the Quakers, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, is is from from a poem about alcohol and about how a group of people got drunk and, and asked God to, to clear them and, and bring a small voice of calm. It's just so beautiful and humble and I it, it brings me real joy. Yeah. It really comes through, you know, that your chapter is about joy and about the joy of a relationship with God. The other thing that comes through in your piece and and in others in the book, which struck me as a kind of unexpectedly subversive thing. And the fact that I saw it as subversive was interesting to me. The, the love for the Bible, you and particularly Padraigo Tuma, mm. that, that this book, this book that calls you back, these stories that you find your home in. You know, when, when did that start? Was it just kind of knitted into your childhood? Well, again, so in primary school, we read it. Um, and I'm sure we skipped some of the dull bits, but certainly we had we had all the stories. I read it again when I was 13 and I was lucky enough to go to Oxford to study English at 18. And when you go to Oxford to study English, you're told to read the Bible. And for lots of um, English students, that's quite a foreboding task. But I was like, nope, nope, fine. I'm absolutely fine to read the Bible. Hello, old friend. Hello. <laughs> um, so, so, and I, I'm, I take something different from it every time. When I read it when I was 13, that was in response to um, my aunt dying, not so much in response to my sexual orientation, actually, because there's there's nothing I ever read in the Bible that made me think, gosh, I fancy girls. There's Luke has got a lot to say about that. You know, th- th- just nothing ever struck me from it, really. So when I read it again at 13, I remember being really taken by Moses getting his gig because his cousin was scared of public speaking. You know, you've got this massive scene in the Old Testament that's about to, you know, rescue and all this kind of part in the Red Sea. And then you've got this scene 
if someone's going, well, I don't really like public speaking, so God, could you could you give me a hand? Because I don't, I'm a bit scared about speaking to the Pharaoh. It's so micro. It's such a like a random little intervention. And then Moses is like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do the talking. And it's it's just beautiful. This kind of God is kind of micromanaging this situation. So all sorts of things like that. And when I was a kid, of course, there was Ruth and Naomi. And my mum and dad called me and my brother both after people who challenged the convention. So so Ruth and Naomi, Ruth did something that she wasn't supposed to do because she she felt, went with her sacred values. And my brother's called Tom, Thomas. And I remember my mum and dad saying, Thomas was the only disciple brave enough to question his friends. You know, he stood up to his friends when it was very difficult to do so. You know, all his friends were saying, this happened. And he was going, I, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it. And that took massive courage from Thomas and it took massive courage from Ruth. And I think those were quite profound ideas when you're kids, that, that, that you can exist in a world of faith and have courage with that faith. Mm. It's so beautiful. Um, and that sense of such a, the picture you paint of that home and then even the time at university with the, with a source of joy from this community and from this book. But there were some darker times, right? Whenever mm. I get people talking about their faith journey, I wish I could find a less cheesy way of saying that. <laughs> but, you know, their relationship with God or their relationship with their faith, whatever it is. It's very unusual that you get someone who doesn't have a period of struggle or angst or doubt. And you, and you definitely did. What drove that? Well, I, th- I, think, I think it's also the context is that it's not, it's, it's not very cool to believe in God. So certainly it's not something I talked about very much, nor did I feel the need to express it as a form of identity, if you know what I mean. It was more my way of being. When I was 21, 22, moved to London, became increasingly aware, of course, that that, that was 2002, 2003. Tony Blair um, was, in, was in charge and he was bringing in lots of legislation, positive for um, lesbian and gay people in particular. And what happened, of course, is the volume of opposition to that became very loud. And a lot of that opposition was positioned as opposition from faith communities. And I think in those days, with quite binary communications, it was quite hard to cut through that. And it became very easy to see faith communities versus LGBT communities. And I certainly didn't have the emotional resilience or wherewithal to navigate that as well as I might do or be able to to differentiate and I got very angry and I got very angry that I was living in a world with such hostility towards towards gay people, where I was obviously experiencing that hostility myself. And that church leaders in particular were part of that hate, felt such an anathema to me that I felt that something was very much taken away from me, that I'd lost um, something that had been a comfort and a joy and a, and a, and a, a playfulness to my faith, you know, a, a, a kind of a playfulness of of ideas and principles suddenly was soured by this vitriol and this rhetoric. So I just went, fine, I'm walking away. It's not for me. If you don't want me, I don't want you either. I mean, a particularly kind of adolescent response, but I'll leave you before you leave me. And I'd struggled to find a community in the way that I'd had as a child. Um, I didn't find a permanent church. Um, I would be quite peripatetic. Um, particularly in London, it's quite easy. There's, there's, if I had a gap and there was a mass, I'd went went to that mass. Avoided joining congregations or being part of it, and and I think that's very common experience for lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people is that they they exclude themselves because they rather than be rejected from a community, it's much easier to go it alone. And I was was very unhappy, and um, there was also a sense that if I'm if I'm if I'm damned 
for same-sex attraction, well then why am I bothering with anything else? So lived the life of Riley and had a great time and was obviously thought that was what freedom looked like. And I think I'm not the first to realise that there's nothing freeing about that, living without boundaries or an adherence to rules or ways of, you know, losing touch with your values is never a satisfying experience, however short-term liberating it might feel. Yeah, it felt when I was reading it that you had a lot of fun and no joy, and yeah. those things are not the same thing. Absolutely. And joy had been such a source for you. And 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 losing that sense of, of um, connection and contentment and, and just feeling very lost. And I think that lots of people who are LGBT describe that similarly, even without faith, that sense of disconnect from a world where, you know, we know that mental health issues are more prevalent in LGBT communities because of routine discrimination and hostility. You know, when I was a teenager, every newspaper article was negative. Every every mention, Section 28 was in schools. We weren't allowed to talk about it. That leaves a mark. That leaves a mark. And And when you hear nothing from faith communities that is affirming, that is so damaging. There's no such thing as neutrality. And I think I think often the church tries to balance this by if they're not openly hostile, they are therefore accepting. That's not that's not enough. You know, you need to hear that you are welcome and loved and included. And that can be through the smallest possible gesture. It doesn't have to be unfurling of a rainbow flag on the top of the church. It just needs to be to acknowledge that LGBT people exist and are loved by God. Like it it, it doesn't take much. And that absence in that time was so acutely painful for me. Yeah. And and in the book, there's a sense in which there's a kind of light motif of that through many of the stories of people, whether they're Christians or, or other faiths of this, uh, that struggle and and trauma in many cases. You had a moment in 2013 that was it sounds like a kind of whatever the positive version of crisis is. Okay, um, crisis can mean both, right? <laughs> um, uh, and a very vivid picture of being in a club on a dance floor. What happened? I just, I was just, and I, it was another night out and it was another night and it was another night and, and, and I stood there and I got, I was just like, why, why God did you walk away from me? Why did you abandon me? Why did you leave me in this quagmire of complexity and messed up relationships and failing here, there and everywhere and deeply unhappy and just had this profound sense of calm and it, I'm, I am willing to say I imagined it for those atheists out there. Of I never left you, I never left you, and just this feeling of relief that it could be okay, that it didn't have to be this hard, and that, and I had to take responsibility, and I had to change things, and there's lots of things I had to do differently, but I could do that, and that, and that that was something that that was possible and within my grasp. What's your relationship with church like now? It's good. Well, so so what also happened is when I became CEO, and uh, my my partner Caroline doesn't believe in an interventionist God, but fully respects that I do. When I became CEO of Stonewall, the I'd done an interview ages ago as director of public affairs, and the phone had answered. I'd answered the phone. I was on press phone, and they said the Catholic masses are closing down. What do you think of that? And I said it's a bad thing. There's lots of Catholics who are gay, and they should be able to go to mass. And the the little headline on the internet website was director of public affairs Ruth Hunt practicing Catholic, says they should keep keep the masses. And nobody cares. The headline when I became CEO was practicing Catholic becomes CEO of Stonewall. And the the reaction was 
was much greater than I expected to that connection because I always kind of thought my faith was quite separate from my work. And I think that's, that's an error a lot of us make. And, I, and I've, I'm better at aligning them now. And I had a bit of a crisis. I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And my first reaction was to push it away and be dismissive about my faith in a kind of, which often occurs in the Bible, this, this kind of- Nothing saint, to see here, Gov. Yeah, no, no, nothing to see here. Um, and went and, and spoke to an amazing priest. And I said, I don't, I don't know what to do about this. I'm not a theologian. I don't know the Greek translation of Leviticus and how it chimes with St. Paul's definition of marriage. And like I, like, I don't know about all that stuff. And he said, you're a very good campaigner. I said, I am a good campaigner. He said, you're a communicator. I said, I'm a communicator. He said, well, then use this time to communicate about how your faith aligns with your leadership, how your faith aligns with your values, and do everything you can to try and change how the church views LGBT people. And I was like, that is something I can do. So really use the opportunity of becoming CEO, having this big kind of epiphany and life change to reconcile some of these identities much more. That's a very long answer, sorry. But um, so I, I, I would still peripatetic, would go to different churches. Um, I've now got a lovely little church I go to in Bethnal Green called St. Matthew's. And of course, I go to church in the Lords, uh, which, is, which is a very different experience. But there's a beautiful little chapel in, in, the, the, in Westminster. It's and incredibly elaborate, isn't it? It is incredibly elaborate. It's, um, it's, One of my friends said it's the campest church they've ever been in, which cracked me camp. up. It's very camp. There's a lot, I mean, as a Catholic who likes my iconography, it, it goes all out there. Um, but um, it's beautiful and I can go on a Wednesday lunchtime or I can go on a Wednesday evening and there's always a place there. So I, I feel for the first time in a long time, I've kind of got a spiritual home now. And I'm on the PCC at St. Matthew's and I'm the electoral role officer and I stay for tea and biscuits afterwards. You know, I'm part of part of the community in a different way, which yeah. is very nice. That anonymous dipping in has passed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you know, as with many of the issues we talk about in this podcast, I was um, thinking how to frame it as carefully as possible. But we need to name <laughs> the fact that, uh, you know, your your love of the Bible comes through so strongly. And when you were reading the Bible then and now, you don't see in, you know, you don't see anything. You see the love of God and the welcome of God. And, and other people read the Bible differently on some issues that are very personal and painful. And that can easily lead to us rejecting each other and pull away from each other. And yet one of the things that's reasonably easy to read off the page is, is you know, Jesus' desire for unity and um, for a church that can navigate difference and to live with our differences. What have you learned about that with people who read the Bible differently from you, particularly on sexuality? What's your journey been? I think, I think that um, historically the Church of England has been very good at coping with theological differences in its ranks. You know, you look at women bishops, you look at divorce. There is an acceptance that part of faith is different interpretations and disagreeing. I think what's been particularly tricky about the issues of sexuality and gender identity is there has been less of a concession or accommodation for those different ways. And part of the outcome of that is people get much more entrenched and people get much more binary and polarised about, about their position. And we all speak with great authority about things we necessarily don't know anything about. Um, I do not understand the translation of Leviticus. I don't think I need to become a scholar of Greek to um, connect. And I, what I found was is that the more we try and 
it's a bit like Clash of the Clans. I don't know if your your listeners understand gaming, but you know, you kind of carve out, carve out your territory and you kind of go, this is my territory and that's your territory and we don't concede it. And whilst we're all spending this time building these walls, this is my, and I, I think this is what Luke meant here and this is what Matthew meant here, God is lost. And the more we do that, the more we fall away from faith. We feel further and further away. And I look at the experiences of young LGBT people who have been part of church communities for so long and their families, and then they suddenly feel excluded. And I look at LGBT people who have faith, who no longer feel a part of that community, and their friends and family who no longer feel part of that community. And I think that is so out of kilter with the fundamental intentions of Christianity, then the walls become irrelevant. So I happily sit and discuss at length what St. Paul meant by, by celibacy, if you like. But actually, what has that got to do with living our best lives as Christ intended? And what saddens me is that those, those disagreements become a mechanism by which we are kept from God rather than brought to God. And that, to me, even from a campaigning and a business point of view, feels like a fundamental flawed approach to disagreements. It's a sort of strategic error. Yeah. I mean, the, the, we are, there are fewer and fewer people going to church there's, there's a quite a compelling business case that we probably shouldn't exclude people. I mean, that just seems a basic premise to me. So I'm saddened by the knots that people continue to get themselves into, how we become entrenched in positions and where there's, there's very limited space for mutual understanding. And I, th- I think um, we're recording this now in, where are we, end of January, the Church of England have just issued a statement that, that goes to great lengths to explain why civil partnerships, you can't have sex in a civil partnership. It's such a contorted argument that that is the most off-putting to anyone who's thinking about dipping their toe in to Christianity. It seems a shame to me. Do you have friendships or people that you respect who would kind of read the Bible differently or say, you know, actually the this the the way we read this bit of scripture is is vital because it affects other things and it affects the doctrine of the Bible and it affects all those things that you're able to kind of be close to or in relationship with and just hold that tension, which obviously is, you know, it's not low stakes for, for yeah. you and for others. No, of course. And 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 I think that those those conversations have to keep happening. And and one of the things about working in Stonewall for 14 years is our approach is to keep working with people who hold different views. If we're only talking to people who agree with us, then we never get anywhere. So I'm quite comfortable holding those positions. I think what's changed is I would rather have those conversations on a Tuesday, not at 10.30 on a Sunday. And that 10.30 on a Sunday is my time. That's where I, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the words and my soul shall be healed. That's my time. It's not my time to debate the Defend. theology of St. Paul's. Yeah. So, and, I, and I think that that was quite a, a moment for me to realise that, yes, I can do that and I will do that. And, 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 I, and I believe in um, civil disagreement and civil discussions that, that are rooted in good faith. And, and I think that has to be a premise. But I don't want that happening in my time mm. when I'm trying to be yeah. most with God. I think, and we'll move on to another knotty and painful conversation in a minute, but the thing that makes me more and more committed to those conversations happening in relationship is how easy the kind of the bogeyman and the caricatures come out that if you sit on this side of the argument, you obviously don't care about the Bible. And if you sit on this argument, you're just clearly a hateful homophobe and the complexity of how people come to their positions and the things they hold sacred and what's driving them. They just take time and some trust, don't they, to uncover. 
And I and I think what I find what I find more difficult is people who act in bad faith that is so far removed from faith. And that's not just about LGBT issues. You can look at that in relation to treatment of women, treatment of um, young people who've experienced categorical atrocities. You know, there, there is nothing fair, right, or Christian about those responses. But I think the Lord's Prayer is very helpful in this. Um, in the kind of um, our Father, forgive those who trespass, as we forgive those who trespass against us, is always read as asking God to forgive those who trespass against us. And of course, what it's asking us to do is to forgive those who trespass against us. And it is very hard for someone who is harmed to forgive those who are harming them. And I try very hard to forgive. And I think that that always helps us find an area of commonality that we can build from. I do think that the era that we're in now where everything is reduced to short, pithy arguments via social media. Social media was once a reflection of positions and now they are entrenching positions and they are eroding away any nuance and subtlety. And things are deliberately taken in in poor faith. You know, this person who has said these 500 words, I'm going to take these 10 and bash them over the head with it. Mm. Um, Just looking for chinks in each other's yeah, armour. It's 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 singularly unhelpful. And I think that it is leading to tensions and hostilities that are very hard to climb down from. Yeah. Well, that partly answers one of my related questions because one of the things that uh, you are kind of remembered for at Stonewall is... Uh, moving it, I don't know what you'd call it before, but certainly to being a trans-inclusive organisation in a way that felt, certainly watching it from the outside, quite seismic, quite complex. Just to, like, tell me the story of that process, you know, what was being done internally in the organisation and what did you learn about engaging across difference? So the, 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 for your listeners may not know, but historically and traditionally across the globe, Movements are LGBT movements. So lesbian, gay, bi and trans people work together. And that's because we often experience discrimination in the same way. We're often excluded in the same way. And we come from the same communities and same families and, and we stick together. Uh, Stonewall didn't take that approach. Stonewall was an LGB organisation and there was another organisation called Press for Change that did trans work. And in our inceptions, in the early days, that kind of worked but about at 2008, Stonewall became very powerful, much stronger. We um, were working with 500 employers. We were working with a thousand schools. We had, a, you, know, you know, lots of influence. And to maintain the position of not including trans people in our campaigning was 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 damaging and damaging. What, what drove community. it initially, or was is it was it just pragmatism, or was there more of a principle thing going on? I think it's it's hard to know. I think I think that the narrative of trans is so different from LGB must it must be kept separate was adhered to quite religiously, and I think that that was um, there, there was there was very little room for questioning of that. I think that lots of trans people were increasingly saying, look, Stonewall, we need your help on this. You know, you're leaving us behind. And by leaving us behind, you're throwing us under a bus, in effect. And I think that has come to pass. You know, in lots of other countries that have better laws around gender identity than we do, they did it at the same time as laws around um, LGB people. So the, the popular communications around around sexual orientation scooped up some of the knowledge and understanding of trans. And and what we've done in Britain is we've we've done that wrong because we did all the sexual orientation laws and now we're tackling trans. And it's and it's harder to do that because there are fewer trans people. So so I think Stonewall did the trans community quite a significant disservice in maintaining its position that they were they were separate issues. Um and I was part of those decisions and and, and I have to reflect on that. And I think I think at times it was about empowering trans communities 
but I think it quickly became about us ignoring the damage we were doing. So when I became CEO, I became insistent on at least resolving the question, should Stonewall be trans-inclusive? So, so what, I, what I went in with was, was absolutely an open mind, but a willingness to, to deliver whatever the conclusion was. And was that conclusion that Stonewall should continue to stay out of it? Should Stonewall bung trans on when it was convenient? Or should we explicitly campaign for trans-specific issues? And over a period of 12 months, conducted quite a significant um, process of talking to as many trans people. I think we talked to 700 trans people in the end. And it involved a lot of acknowledgement of the pain that Stonewall had caused by excluding, and not just excluding, but by mistakes we'd made, actually, that perpetuated transphobia. So it was an, art, it was an exercise of building trust. We also had to do a lot of thinking about what we would lose by bringing trans in and, and how we would have to change. So often when people think about widening out their circles, they think it's about people coming into an existing culture and being assimilated into that culture. Actually, by Stonewall becoming more inclusive of trans and more inclusive of, of people of colour as well, we had to change. Our old ways of working weren't good enough. And, and that, that was a, that's a transition. That's quite painful. It's painful for everybody. If, if the House of Lords becomes more diverse, things will change. You know, it, it, it is not just we have different people on the benches. The, the, the flavour will change. The conversations will change. The issues will change. And so that was quite a process for Stonewall. And I think that also... We knew that, that there were people within both the LGB community and others who were very hostile about trans people and would find it difficult to tolerate our inclusion of trans people. And uh, Stonewall's, Stonewall is utterly familiar with adversity and opposition to our positions. That's kind of our bread and butter. I think the, the cruelty that accompanied this opposition came as a surprise to all of us. And, you know, in our... Terrible chestnut current climate, but I, it, it feels that there is an acknowledgement that we are getting more divided and our ability to tolerate difference and the discomfort that difference and diversity brings is getting worse. And we've kind of mentioned the way that information technology drives that. But are there any other things that you think I have often looked at the conversation about trans and thought, why is this so painful? You know, even as a kind of person just trying to educate myself on it, I go, right, I'm just going to try and read the best arguments on both sides in a reasonably kind of measured way just to inform myself. And even trying to find those is difficult because everything is so heightened. What do you think is driving um, this spike in conflict essentially around this issue? Well, I, I, think, I think it's a little bit about the culture of the individual and our own need to adhere to our own positions in a, in a slightly um, uh, Im immovable way. I think that, that I think social media has made a huge difference to how people have conversations and how people represent those conversations. But I also think it has come at a time when the world is increasingly polarised and our country is increasingly polarised and how we navigate that polarisation is through pain. But I've been reading a lot recently about um, the reign of Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth. And of course, the way Protestants and Catholics were pitched against each other and uh, people held very strongly into their positions and, um, you know, were killed for it. I, I think we are not immune as a society from taking very strong positions. I think those come at different times in our in our times. I think at the moment we are in a time where people feel very angry about lots of things and are holding on very tight to things that they want to be 
true and and feel safe and people aren't moving from that. The reality, of course, is that Stonewall and, and I now continue to have nuanced conversations about issues. What do we do about prisons? What do we do about sport? What do we do about... Um, and that has always happened. And Stonewall has always worked in, not out. You know, we've always been inside the walls talking. But that gets lost on social media, fueled by mainstream media. And it really reminds me of the way the media responded to HIV in the late 80s, um, how... Uh, so um, Lord Cashman, Michael Cashman, who's one of the founders of Stonewall, has got his autobiography out at the moment. And he talks about that first kiss in EastEnders where he kissed a man and the tabloids went wild for him and mad for him and that, that, that um, one newspaper offered gay people a one-way ticket out of the country. You know, that, that, that we forget, I think, just quite how cruel things are when you're trying to change things. Mm. And it is, alas, the, ty- the, the, the turn of trans people right now. Mm. So that connects to a kind of bigger question about tone and posture whenever we're engaging across difference. Because I was really struck by a quote in a Guardian article about this. You said, there are some people who believe trans women are men and there's nothing that would change that. And on the other extreme, not on the other extreme, but on the other hand, there's a group of pe- that think trans women are women and that's the camp Stonewall supporters in. And then there's a group of people who believe trans women are trans women. It's all a bit baffling. And can we have a chat about it? Which feels like a really helpful way of summing up where most people are yeah. on this issue. It feels to me like for, for those in, in the middle who are just, because of the demographics, a very small number of trans people, they don't know any. And the issue is suddenly on, their, on the agenda in a way that, that hasn't been for, for, that the way the debate is being had, and I think, you know, we react to each other, right? We get into fight or flight. and kind of aggression on one side, even if it's for very good reasons, is triggers the, uh, the other in the opposite and this entrenching happens. But it feels like that group in the middle who are just like, okay, I don't know what I think, aren't being necessarily served by it. But I've also had the argument from several people who are campaigners that sometimes when you want to bring change, you need to be in reconciliation mode and listening and empathy and understanding the roots of things. And sometimes no more of that. Like You need to be more rabble-rousing. You need to be more um, straightforward, you know. I think of the Stonewall. You know, some people are gay. Get over it. Buses. They're they're not impolite, but they're very blunt. You know, they're like. Which of those do you do you kind of code switch between those two? Personally, do you think you are more in one camp than the other, and that's fine because there's a diversity? Or do you think that actually one approach is more fundamental or more necessary than the other? I mean, I code switch. I mean, that's 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 how I work, and I and I move from different audiences all the time, and I and I talk in different ways. I think Stonewall's approach is always about um, educating. So, so that middle camp is is Stonewall's objective, and Stonewall does a huge amount of work with that group that doesn't get summarised on Twitter. You know, Stonewall works with thousands of employers, and they go in and they talk to those staff about trans issues, and they. Uh, nudge it through in all sorts of different ways and, and have lots of very thoughtful conversations about that. I think that the, there is an assumption that Stonewall is more rabble-rousing than it is. It's always been quite a, um, on the one hand and on the other, organisation. And that there are always people who would, I mean, I, I've been reading Derek Jarman, actually, and his diaries speak really angrily about Stonewall. So when Stonewall was founded, Stonewall was seen as a very kind of moderate, on the one hand and on the other, organisation. And Derek Jarman was furious about it. And the Gay Liberation Front, you know, we want to be more rabble-rousing. Stonewall's always been quiet conversations behind the scenes. Um, and and then the occasional cute campaign, like some people are gay, get over it, that, that captures the imagination. So my, my approach is always, 
that 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 middle ground approach, which infuriates some people in in the queer community who would like me to be much more condemn condemning of people who oppose us. But it's it's not my way. It's really interesting. Um, let's come on to the book that is. Uh, I'm not sure when this episode will go out, but will uh, shortly be available, or is already available. <laughs> the book of queer prophets. What triggered it? Uh, well, so when I announced I was leaving Stonewall and uh, joining the Lords and things like that, I got lots of people coming and saying, would you like to write? You've been at Stonewall for 14 years, um, from 2005 to 2014. You've seen the big, 2019 actually, seen the big changes. Do you want to write about it? And I said, no, I don't want to write a history of gay rights, actually. I'm not interested. Um, what I would like to do is create a platform that I have and share that platform with others. So uh, talked to Harper Collins and worked out how we could create a book where lots of different types of voices would come and, and just talk about these issues in, in a way that is about building bridges, not walls. Um, and, and the people who feature are people who have faith, people who once had faith and have lost it, people who would never have faith because of the following reasons. And I think we needed to start hearing those voices in these conversations and discussions. Because I think there's something profoundly missing that that gets lost when we are debating the interpretation of the Bibles. You know, we're missing the humanity. So, so the Book of Queer Prophets attempts to bring some humanity to the discussion, and it does that in incredible diversity. The uh, the Muslim drag queen is very vivid in my mind because it just tells this brilliant story about kind of crisis and rediscovery of Muslim identity. The thing that really stood out to me, because of course what I was expecting was a book that had a lot of pain in it, that had a lot of grief and anger in it. And there is some of that. It's not, not in there. But what the, the, it, it's made me kind of dwell on your title because that what, what is also really coming through is very personal and beautiful and eloquent case for faith in lots of places. You know, that the Muslim drag queen t just t starts talking about the Quran, which made me want to go back and read it because I haven't for a while. And you know, Padraig O'Tuma and Jay Hume, who's, you know, a uh, trans poet who has no religious background and then went into a cathedral and talked really hilariously about starting having feelings and then being scared of the feelings and then having to text a friend and be like, I think Jesus is after me. <laughs> you know, he's had this, this conversion where he's now like, well, where, where do I belong? You know, and how much of that was in, was in your mind or was you kind of like, you put out the invitations, you just didn't know what you were going to get back? I think, I think we didn't know. And I, but I, I've always suspected that because LGBT people have a, a, a battle to find faith, they have something quite profound to say about it that is of interest to all of us, quite apart from how they navigate a church's response to their sexual orientation and gender identity. I, th you know, I think that often when LGBT people of faith, the assumption is about this irreconcilable difference and how do you navigate it. And of course, LGBT people are like everybody else and are finding faith in weird and wonderful and glorious ways. But because they have to fight to hold it, become very good at explaining it. So I, I think what, it, what I was really struck by is the richness and diversity of experiences and approaches to faith. And then I think I was struck by a sadness that that the organised church, for want of a better word, is missing out on those insights. You know, there is something something profound for heterosexual people to gain from these stories, you know, and, and these insights about faith and how and how God moves in mysterious ways and comes to us in mysterious ways, and how sad it is that we're, we're putting up barriers to that inclusion. That that seems such an anathema to what to what God intends. I always ask uh, guests 
lots of people are listening, I think, because they're concerned about division and they want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So I ask people what they've learned. And usually they're kind of balancing on one particular nexus, but actually that's artificial with everyone and is particularly with you. So uh, from speaking to non-religious people as a religious person or from uh, speaking about LGBT issues to those who might not be on the same page as you, what are the key things that you've learned? So I, I am clearly of the view that, that, that conversation and connection is profoundly important, that apologising and listening is key and uh, not getting stuck in, in where things have gone wrong, but also really finding ways of, of, of commonality is, is, is really important. And the assumption that there is no area of commonality in some of these conversations does us all a profound disservice. And I think that people are better than we give ourselves credit for. And we can make a lot of progress just by taking the time and just slightly turning down our ego. I find that um, defensive anger feels really good, but rarely makes any difference whatsoever. And I think that that takes discipline and a huge amount of self-care to not rally and react to everything that happens, but just to kind of take that still small voice of calm Mm -hmm. and make space for each other. This year I've been praying and thinking and circling around when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, how that's become a truism, but what it actually requires is overriding your instinctive, that rush of cortisol, that rush of self-righteousness, that rush of defense, which means you want to strike back or you want to withdraw. And the discipleship process that he's calling us to is stay in the conversation, keep eye contact, like don't let that thread drop. And it's hard. It's really hard. And we're human and we're fallible. And I, and I think that we, 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 we're not forgiving of ourselves enough. I, um, I was, I'm not a very good runner, but I try. And I was out on Sunday and someone nicked my phone out of my hand. Ugh. And he was on his bike. And I turned around and sprinted after him and fell over. And, you know, oh, just kind Ruth. of had this kind of spectacular um, collapse. And I went home and I was crying. And I was like, it's not fair. It's my new phone. And my partner, Caroline, said, well, he needs it more than you. And I was like, don't say Shut that. <laughs> I want compulsory CCTV in every park. And um, and Caroline's not of faith at all. And, and, it, and it took her saying that for me to go, okay, look, this doesn't matter. Let it go, you know. And, and But we are human. And I think it's about understanding that, you know, when someone is homophobic towards me, and I experience that a lot, and, you know, I often get – we don't mind you having a girlfriend, but you have to be so gay about it. Why do you have to wear suits? Why do you, why are you tweedy tie wearing? Why, why, why are you that kind of gay? Why can't you be a more subtle gay? And I want to rally against that and I want to push against it and I want to call them out and have a quick quip and a quick read and actually recognising that that's a very human reaction, but doesn't get us very far. And I'm now existing in a in an environment full of people who find me a bit of a bit of an oddity, I should think. And part of my role is to help navigate that. Ruth Hunt, thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. 
As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk. Thank you.